0: Matthew chapter 11. I'll tell you what, the human mind is fascinating. I don't know if you've ever studied it or you've kind of read about some of the things that the mind can do. It is just absolutely fascinating. I mean, you know, we pride ourselves in having these high-powered computers and little phones that we can do all these fancy things with. But it, it they compare not one iota to the human mind. I mean, let me just give you an illustration of that. Uh, like, for instance, on this slide here. Can you read that? Look at that. Okay, you see all those letters are all kind of jumbled together, but can you read that? Does anybody? Yeah. It's, it's look at that. Isn't that fascinating? The human mind is a wonderfully complex organ. You see, it doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word appear. The only important thing is that the first and last letter are in the right place. The rest can be a total mess, and you can still read it without a problem. This is because the human mind does not need read every letter by itself but the word as a whole. Amazing, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that cool? I mean, our mind puts that all together because, you see, when your mind looks at a word, it actually picks up the first and the last letter, and it immediately processes options, and it reads it. So, for instance, have you ever noticed that you have progressed from first grade? You Remember when you were, the ball is, the, you know, you remember that one? Well, now you're just like, wow, well, I can cruise through the newspaper, I can read my textbook, I can read through this novel. It's because your mind has an amazing capacity. But, you know, when you look at those letters there, in actuality, they're a jumbled mess, aren't they? And we feel like that sometimes in life. We feel like we're going through life and it is a mess. Things are out of place. Nothing makes sense. How come this is there and that's not happening? And and we come to life with some pretty serious questions. Let me let me just tell you, when you recognize that God is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, you are able to start to make sense of the mess in the middle. Now, today we're going to talk about a very serious subject. We're going to be talking about doubt. How in the world do we deal with doubt now, every single one of us? faces doubt at different times in our life. And really, I think mean, big questions of doubt, like, is God really in control? I mean, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to even God's people who are actually doing his work, his mystery? How, What's going on with that? Or is Jesus really the Christ? Is he truly the Messiah? Oh, there are a lot of folks that would like to beg to differ with you on that. Go to universities. And and Jesus may be mentioned, but exclusive, Messiah, one way, the only true God. I ain't going to fly here. No, we're going to group him in with all the others here. He's a holy guy. He's done some nice things. We should listen to his teachings, but exclusive, the one and only true God? There's some people that, you know, I'm not sure about that. And then, you know, I'm sure we've all wrestled with this one. Does God really even care about us, me, you? I mean, is there a purpose in our life? Are we here for some eternal purpose? Is God working out his earthly will through us and our lives? Because it seems so confusing and so messed up. If you have ever struggled or you are presently struggling with doubt on any of those questions, or even those I haven't mentioned, then you don't want to miss what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 11. You might want to put a mark in your Bible right here. When in doubt, go to Matthew 11. Read here. Don't miss the message. Now, first thing I want to tell you is if you've got doubts or you've faced doubts or you've got a friend or a family member that's facing doubts, you want to first of all recall that you are not alone. That almost that automatically takes the pressure off because... You kind of when you feel like you've got doubt, man, Like I am the only one that's got any doubt on any of these issues. In actuality, that's not true. In fact, Matthew 11 was written in part for this very reason. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse one. Now, when Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. So remember, Matthew chapter 10, he goes and commissions his disciples Said, listen. All right. This has been great. You've been watching me preach, do the work. I am going to authorize you. I'm going to give you my authority. You're going to have powers. And I want you to go and proclaim the gospel. I'm sending you out two by two. Now go, okay? You go to the lost sheep of Israel. I'm sending you on a short-term mission. And so he does. And he empowers them. And Matthew chapter 10 gives us in great detail, what does it really look like to follow Jesus Christ? Well, as soon as he sends them out, and he sends them out saying, listen, it's going to be tough. This first journey might be all right. might go okay. You might not get beat up. But let me tell you, as the Christian mission and kingdom advances, it is going to get rugged and brutal. So Jesus sends the twelve out, and when he does that, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. He goes now back to the cities, he sends them out, and he continues his ministry. Jesus is alone now, and now he's, the crowds will come and follow him. He sent out his men. He is fully accomplishing his will to take Pull people from a point of unbelief to belief to a point where they're actually involved in his ministry. That is true today. That is what he is trying to do. Well, now, there is one of Jesus' key guys who's got some serious doubts. We met him real early on in the Gospel of Matthew. His name is John. John the Baptizer. Now, don't. He's called John the Baptist. And a lot of people, oh, he was a Baptist, Southern Baptist. Can't be one of ours. That's not had anything to do with it. All right. He was not a denominational guy. But he was Jesus, a key man. In fact, he was the forerunner for the Messiah. And John, look, what it says in verse two. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for Someone else. You can see doubt just written right there. John is in prison. I mean, John is the one who actually proclaimed that the Messiah is coming. You better get your heart ready. In fact, John was there. Remember when Jesus came to the Jordan River, where John was baptizing people, calling the the nation to repent, calling Gentiles, soldiers, repent of your wickedness, your self-centeredness, your idolatry. Get ready. Get your heart ready because Messiah is coming. And Jesus came. John recognized him. He says, I know you're the Messiah. I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, but you baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. And remember when he goes down, Jesus goes down fully in the water. When he comes back up, there was an amazing scene where all three members of the Trinity All three persons manifest themselves. Jesus himself is there as he stands up out of that water. The Holy Spirit ascends upon him on a dove, lighting upon his shoulder. And then a voice out of the heavens declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is him. This is the one that has been promised from all time, from the beginning of Genesis, To the final words of Malachi, he's here. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. You know, John saw that. And so if anybody had deep experiences with Jesus, it would have been John. And you remember part of John's message was, listen, listen. When the Messiah comes, he's going to baptize with fire. He is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He is going to bring about the great delineation from those who are with God and those who are not. No mixed, kind of confused, no gray, black and white, either with him or without him. That was John's message. And, you know, he's listening. Now, certainly these these works that Jesus did, miracles. I mean, he had command even over nature itself could stop the wind. He actually healed people, blind people, deaf people, people with leprosy. raised the dead. he, He heard these things. That all worked well with being Jesus coming in the Holy Spirit and doing these amazing, benevolent, great acts. But where was the, the judgment? Where, where was this Messiah to bring about the, the break of Rome off their backs? Because the widespread notion of Messiah was that he was going to come and be a political, military conqueror. And the Jews really wanted to get Rome, who had now occupied them and made their life miserable, off them. Jesus wasn't doing any of that. He's preaching sermons. People are gathering to him. But he does, he's never once even lifted, lifted a finger to demolish Roman forces. John just didn't get it. He had all these kind of signs of doubt. This was not seemingly in keeping with what he was expecting. And that's why he sent his disciples he said, are you the expected one? That is a, a term for Messiah. Are you the awaited one? Are you the one we are waiting for? Or shall we look for someone else? You know, the first step back from doubt, if you've ever been there, it's all cloudy and you're, and you're not sure. You're not even sure about yourself because you don't have tangents. You're not standing on a rock. Things are shifting. The first step back from doubt is to take it to Jesus personally go to him you see that is what John is doing he's bringing his plight to the Lord himself it is no sin to ask a question with sincere motives and if people are asking sincere questions good questions and they're doing so with sincere motives don't be like putting them off like oh you should never ask things like that it's through asking good questions and probing and searching out that you will find answers and a depth of conviction you will build a faith that is even stronger. But go to Jesus with your questions. Go to him. See what his word has to say. When, you, when you're when you facing doubt, first of all, you want to recall that you're not alone. Let me tell you something else. you got to realize that God is fulfilling his plan. Realize that God is fulfilling his plan, but that you may not be seeing it at this time. I mean, Think of it. God is fulfilling his plan, but you may not be seeing it as time. God is fulfilling his plan. He is right on schedule. Nothing is off. He is accomplishing his his will just as he intended. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take him and show him scripture after scripture that, indeed, he's completely on track. Now, let me tell you something. Is Jesus really going to conquer is he going to be a reigning ruler? Is he really going to separate the wheat from the shaft? Is he going to actually judge unbelievers? Absolutely. You see, John had the right message. He just had put Jesus on his timetable, not on the Lord's himself. Jesus, even his own disciples, had struggled with this. And as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, when you get to Matthew chapter 25, the last half of the chapter is dedicated to Jesus explaining the judgment is coming. Now is the time of grace. I am announcing that the king is here and you can come into the kingdom by believing in the Messiah, by believing in me. But make certain I will come again. And when I come, I am going to come in judgment. And I will bring a judgment of fire upon this earth. And so the only thing wrong with John is that he was forcing Jesus into his mold of how things should work. So what Jesus does is he actually then goes and authenticates to John and to his to his disciples to he passed back to John, who he is. Look at verse four. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you see hear, and see. It's as this time he actually probably starts doing these miracles. And what Jesus is doing is he is showing how he is fulfilling the scriptures, the promises given about the Messiah. And so he says, you've seen these things. You've heard them. Go tell John, verse 5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. All of these, actually, the prophet Isaiah spoke that Messiah would do. He actually would do all the things that are listed here. The lame will walk, the lepers will be cleansed, the deaf are going to hear, even the dead are raised up. These are the things that Messiah would do. And Jesus says, I'm doing them. I'm right on track. You need not worry. Now, when I read through that list, what Jesus actually said, he's quoting all these different passages from Isaiah. You would think the culminating one, the culminating miracle would be what? That the dead are raised. I mean, what's greater than that? I mean, can you think of a greater miracle than the dead are raised? You're like, no, I don't think so. Jesus says, let me tell you what's even greater than the dead being raised. What's that? Look at how he ends verse 5. That the poor, those who are broken, those who see and have great need, the poor have the gospel preached to them. The greatest miracle is that the message regarding Messiah and that you believe and united with him, you will actually have eternity with him. The good news is, that God is going to address our sin problem through the person of Christ who is going to die, pay the penalty, and will be raised again, that good news is even the greatest miracle. If a man or a woman should be raised from the dead, that person will die again. But if you believe in the gospel, you believe in Christ, he is your sole hope, he is the Messiah, you have eternity with God. That is an even greater miracle. That's why it's found at the very end. And he says, blessed is the one who does not stumble or take offense, is not offended by me. This isn't meant to be a rebuke to John. It's actually meant to be an encouragement. You see, John was focused on Jesus, what Jesus was not doing, instead of what he is doing. Sound familiar? You and I get into real trouble when we're like, ah, oh, God's not doing this, or Jesus isn't doing this right now in my life. We get in trouble that way when we stop thinking. Stop and not consider what he is doing. He's accomplishing his plan completely on track. Now, if you are struggling with doubt, maybe life seems an upheaval and you're not exactly sure how God could possibly worry working in this mess. You need to know that you're not alone. Uh, many very spiritual people have encountered seasons, days, weeks, periods of time. Of doubt like moses for instance anybody ever experienced the power of god had to be a guy like moses but while he's on that journey and his people are once again whining and complaining he's like you know what i don't get this i don't see the point we're in the desert they want water and food there are no restaurants nearby this is terrible they hate me and yet i'm leading them they want to go back to egypt which is dumb because they just end up being slaves if they don't get killed and I'm supposed to take him to a promised land, but we have to wander here. This doesn't make sense. God, just take me out. That's what he said. Kill me. I'm done. Or Elijah. He certainly experienced God's great power. And yet there was a period of time right after that where all it took was one woman say, listen, I want your head. Jezebel, and he says. I'm, I'm fleeing. I'm done. And he slipped into a deep depression or Jeremiah or even Paul. He even came to points in his life he can read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says we're even despaired of even life itself. Doubts creep in. They leave us in some pretty dark places. But let me tell you, the best way to remove doubts is not by pretending that they are not there, but by actually exposing them to the truth of God don't let your doubt take you to a place of isolation. You're like, oh, and you just back away and you start isolating from people and drop out of church. You drop out of your small group and you just, you become kind of this incognito Christian. You like to just blend in the woodwork. It is a satanic pull. It is part of your flesh to always move back from God. What you, when you face doubt, don't deny it. What you want to do is expose it to the truth of God's Word. So if you've ever felt puzzled, why is life not working? Why, didn't, why was I never healed from this? This isn't what I thought my life would turn out to be. What you need to do is go back to God and his word. His word will do his work in your life. His grace will be sufficient, even in the midst of all of your deficiencies. And God is working out his plan in his timetable, and he is going to accomplish it. Now, if you face doubts, let me just tell you, that isn't like the story of your life, like, oh, man, I went through a season of doubt. That's it. I'm a loser Christian for the rest of my life. No. One chapter doesn't make a book. Now, if you're in a perpetual state of absolute unbelief, totally reject the whole idea that Jesus Messiah, even the existence of God, you have no certainty whatsoever of your salvation. Perhaps what you initially thought was your Christian experience was in actuality not truly a deep-seated relationship because God always brings his people back. But it doesn't mean that you won't have seasons of doubt. Well, there's something else that you need to see here. This is, this is fascinating. I love the scriptures because you see the heart of God manifest. Now, what would you do if, if you're Jesus and you your key man, the forerunner, the guy who announced your arrival preached these great messages, saw widespread repentance, he's, he's asking a question, are you the expected one or should we wait for someone else? you think you would go, I didn't really like that John guy anyway. You know what I'm saying? He's in prison. By the way, let me tell you how, why this is so difficult for John. He's, he's not in prison. Don't get the idea of American penal institution here where you're sitting around getting to watch TV and you're getting three square meals. Uh-uh. He is in Makairos. We actually know where the ruins of that, because that dungeon is still there, right on a high ledge over the Dead Sea. They actually still even have the metal hooks of this dungeon where John the Baptist is being held. This is a very difficult place, and he knows that his head will be on the line. You just wait. You see, how in the world did John the Baptist even end up in prison, by the way? You're like, what happened? He stood for what is right. He actually, you'll find this in Matthew chapter 14. He told Herod, Herod Antipas, your marriage to that woman Herodias is unlawful. It is not in keeping with God's revealed truth. Now, you're like, well, I mean, Herod just got married. Well, let me just give you a little detail. Herodias was actually his former sister-in-law. You see, Herodias had been married to his brother Philip, okay? That was Philip's wife, and eventually he took her over. And John the Baptist said, you have violated God's law. Herod, okay, he is governor, okay. He's like, that ain't my law. John the Baptist said, that doesn't matter what your law is. What matters is God's law. That to make Herod very happy. So he says, listen, I'm going to make your life miserable. I'm going to, I'm going to put you into one of my prisons. How about the worst one? And that's where John is. He is dealing with real difficulty. He's dealing with hardship. It isn't working out. He served God faithfully and, and he ends up in prison. So much for the trust in Jesus and life is Rose's story, right? Because it doesn't work that way. It's like Jesus said, you come, follow me. You pick up your cross. You die daily and you come and you follow me. And really, it's in the times of deep darkness that our faith is greatly tested. And when we still hold on with an ounce of faith, then God's person and his work are made manifest in our life. Well, let me tell you, John doesn't. Jesus doesn't say, John, I don't have any use for you anymore. You did what you needed to do. I'm I'm not even going to think about you. No. You want to see the heart of God? Look at the scriptures. You see God's great love. You see the love that Jesus has. In fact, Jesus honors this man. Verse 7, as these men were going away, okay, they likely had seen Jesus do some of the miracles that he just spoke of. As, again, once again, fulfilling Isaiah, these guys are going away like, whoa, we're going to take this back to John. As they're going, the crowds are gathered. Jesus commends his man. Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. All of a sudden, you're like, you're walking away. You got this in your head. You just saw these things. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about the very one that you're going back to. What are you going to do? Stop. What does he have to say about John? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Asked Jesus. Did you go out to see a reed? shaken by the wind. The reeds, these, oh, these reeds were along the Jordan River. I mean, they were flimsy. they fall over all the time. You know, you go in the river, and you walk on them and the reeds, just and they just fall over, and they move around with the currents of the river. Was John some sort of vacillating reed? Things got tough. He'd bend over. He, he Was Was he like that? He gave up real easy? Where Jesus says, uh, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a guy who was all dressed up? He'd come from Saks Fifth Avenue. You got a man dressed in soft clothing. Do you want to see a guy who is just real kingly and within the life of ease? No, Jesus says, verse 8, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. No, Jesus says, John's not some sort of guy who vacillates with the currents and the winds and the trends of society, nor was he just a guy who just liked, liked the soft life. He was a man's man. And he dealt with and endured hardship. Jesus says, verse 9, let me tell you, what did you go out to see? I'll tell you what you went out to see. You went out to see a prophet. And yes, I tell you, verse 9, and one who is more than a prophet. You went out to see a spokesman of God. And I tell you, you saw one when you saw John the Baptist. In fact, he is more than a prophet. Verse 10, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Whoa. Now, everybody was totally locked on. Do you know where that's from, don't you? Well, all the crowd certainly did. The final book of the Old Testament, one that was read over and over, was the book of Malachi. This is a direct quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And Jesus says, you know who he went out to see? You went out to see someone who's more than a prophet. You went out to see the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. I am sending my messenger, and he's going to prepare the way. He's going to specifically prepare the hearts of the people. John the Baptist is that guy. And he says, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Whoa! What is Jesus doing? He's commending his servant. That message is going to go back to John because, you know, John thinks like, my life meant nothing. I have no purpose or real significance in God's plan. On the contrary, Jesus is spilling it out. There is no one greater born of woman than John the Baptist. And he says, and then look at this, verse 11. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see, John was the announcer, the forerunner, the proclaimer that the king and the kingdom are coming. But Jesus says to actually be in the kingdom puts you in a situation that's even greater. It's not that you have greater character than John. It's that you have greater privilege to be in the kingdom of God. It was great to be John, although I'm sure the jail scene was got to be difficult being in prison like that. But Jesus says, if you were a part of my kingdom, how much greater... It is to be in that position of great privilege. He says, listen, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. What he's saying here is that what's taking place here is that the kingdom is being totally rejected by the religious establishment. When he talks about violent men, a guy like Herod Anabas would fill the brawl. He's trying to take it by force. You see, the Jews wanted to put an end to this whole messianic movement where Jesus is proclaiming himself king. You hold on. Right now they're giving in some pretty tough words like, well, everything you do is because you're in league with Satan. Well, they're going to amp this up. One day Jesus himself will be put to death. It says violent men trying to take it by force. They're trying to destroy the work of God. But he says, verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. This is how God works. He says the law and the prophets. You see, the law shows us our need for the Messiah. God says in his law, it's like a finger pointing the way. This is how to live. But what it does is, can you and I live that way? No. He says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Anybody doing a bat in a thousand on that one? No. How about the love your neighbor as yourself? Uh, I don't even know my neighbor's name. What? You see, the law, it actually shows us our need for Messiah. The prophet's pointed to the one who was coming. In fact, sometimes the prophets gave very specific detail regarding who the Messiah is and what he will do. In fact, they gave on one count about 333 prophecies regarding Messiah so you and I wouldn't miss him when he shows up. And that's exactly what they did. He says, the law and the prophets, for all the law and the prophets, prophesied until John. They kept pointing to the Messiah. But with the coming of John, He is the forerunner who actually pointed to the one and said, here he is. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And verse 14, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what John is, what Jesus is doing is saying, John the Baptist. You remember how the Old Testament closes, Malachi chapter 4? It says, Elijah will come and he is going to prepare hearts and John said, Jesus says, John is that man. John the Baptist isn't Elijah reappeared and he and took on a new name. It's like the angel that announced to Zechariah right before the birth of, of John, John the Baptist. He said, this one will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He had Elijah's ministry, the prophetic role of calling people to himself. And what Jesus is saying is, John is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And at the same time, Jesus is saying this. If he is the fulfillment of that prophecy, I'm the Messiah because he announced me. Well, Jesus says, I want you to be crystal clear on that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is about me. You see, John brought the closure of the Old Testament and he announced the king. And that's where we have the beginning of the new covenant, the New Testament. Now, don't let doubts overwhelm you and overwhelm your perspective. Do You see what Jesus did here? He helped John see that he had a great role in God's plan. You know what doubts do? They take us from a position of, of realizing that God may use us or is using us to a place where we feel like he will not use us or can't use us. In actuality, what you need to know is that if you're a child of the king, he is using you right where he has placed you. The enemy of our souls wants us to be defeated, discouraged, to run around like eager and saying, woe is me, and and you're just like, oh, God can't use me, and you bury your head in the sand. You refuse to engage in the work. You kind of give up, and in actuality, you're missing out. He's using you right where he's placed you. You He wants to bear fruit right where you're at, even if you think you got a dead-end job, you're like, Man, I'm sitting here just washing dishes or trying to move my household forward, or I'm just here at school. I'm just a student. I'm a junior high student. Could God use me? Absolutely. Don't miss the significance of being an active, playing an active role in what God is doing. You see, when you're when you're facing doubt, you, first of all, you got to recall that you're not alone. But second, realize that God is fulfilling His plan, and you just may not be seeing it. God doesn't have to let you see everything that he's doing in fact you and i are called to live by faith which means that we actually walk not on the principle of sight i only do that which i see but that i move forward by faith trusting that god is actually doing and accomplishing exactly what he says he is who he said he is he is and he is accomplishing his work and the ultimate act of faith is even when you don't even feel the presence of god And yet you are still clinging to him. Well, you see, God is fulfilling his plan, even if you don't see it, because you're not required to see it. Let me give you just one other principle. What do you do when you're facing doubt? Well, you want to do this. You want to respond with faith in Christ and his word. Look at this. This is pretty fascinating. Beginning in verse 16. Jesus is going to shift gears here. You see, faith is taking God at his word. That's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. It is the exact opposite of what the people were doing. They were not taking God at his word. They were not believing Jesus. And Jesus says, you are missing it. You must believe in me. So he says, verse 16, but what shall I compare this generation? This was the standard way of how a rabbi would introduce a metaphor. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who called out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we sang a dirge, like a a funeral song, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. What, What Jesus is saying here is like, Listen, John the Baptist came. He came calling for repentance. He called for mourning. And you're like, we don't like this guy. We don't like him. We don't like what he's saying. And so what do you do when you don't like someone? You start bad-mouthing him, don't you? His clothing is terrible. Talk about a fashion statement, huh? Rough clothing. And he eats bugs. You know that? You know, only a demonic person would eat bugs. You know? And, that's where and so they, they wouldn't listen to the messages. What do you do if you don't like the message? You start tearing into the guy who's given it, right? Well, that's what they did. Well, John says, John came, he called for a funeral. You're like, I don't want that. This guy's demon-possessed. Messiah comes, Jesus comes, and what does he do? He invites sinners to come to know him, to trust in him. He never says, hey, that's all right, just keep on with your, all you're saying, and, you know, you can just add me to your life. No, he called him repentance. He always shot straight. But he was a friend of sinners, still is. In fact, he'd go... Remember when Matthew, the tax collector, one of the absolute worst, he actually goes to his house and Matthew invites all of his wicked friends to come over so they can meet Jesus. Well, Pharisee's like, well, we don't like that John the Baptist guy. But here is Jesus on the whole other end of the spectrum. And he's, in, he's actually eating and drinking with sinners. And so, you know what? We've got to slander this man. And so they did. And so that, that's what they said. The son of man. You know what? We're going to say he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Verse 19. That is what they're calling the Messiah. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They thought that was a bad thing. A friend of sex oh, tax collectors sinners. That's who Jesus is. He's a friend of the people in need, and their lifestyle just uh, just manifests that. By the way, see all these people with drug issues, sex problems, whether it be homosexuality, heterosexuality. Let me tell you, these are symptoms of a heart wreckage. These people need the Savior, and if we despise them, we will never reach them. Jesus was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. They thought that was a bad thing. Jesus says, that's what I'm all about. I'm about rescuing the lost. It doesn't matter what stripe or or shape or fashion they're in. Well, they've been goody-two-shoes or are not so good. I came for these people. And Jesus says, verse 19, you know what? Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Just like wisdom is manifested in godly life, So the message of John and Jesus will be will be manifested in transformation of the lives of the people who trust in Christ. See, he says, you know what needs to take place here? You got to respond by faith. You need to repent. And so then Jesus begins to denounce. Imagine what this was like. He goes on and all of a sudden Jesus said he's just going to start denouncing cities he began to denounce the cities in which, verse 20, most of his miracles were done because they did not, what's the word there? Did you see it? They did not what? They didn't repent. We have the idea that you just have to receive Jesus, just just embrace Jesus. Jesus is calling you to turn away from whatever you've been trusting in and to trust in me. And so the situation is the cities he did his most miracles, he said, you didn't repent. And you're going to face judgment. You know, with high privilege comes high responsibility. The fact that you have a Bible in your home or a hotel room, or you can turn on the radio, or someone has gone to great lengths to explain the gospel to you, and you reject it, puts you in a very precarious situation, because with high degree of privilege comes a lot of responsibility. And so he says, verse 21, Woe, okay, that is the statement you make right before judgment takes place. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Okay? Now he's starting to name off cities around the city, the Sea of Galilee. Here were two key ones, Chorazin and Bethsaida. He says, For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, these were Phoenician cities. Remember, they were really wicked. The prophets liked to pick on these cities because they were, they emphasized Baal worship, and also they were highly materialistic. They had foreign gods, satanic gods, which they worshipped, and they were highly materialistic. The prophets brought about condemnation on them, said, This is absolutely wrong. Look what Jesus had to say. He said, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, in your city, they would have repented. You see that word again? You would have changed directions 180 degrees long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is really rough clothing. You would wear it to show that, hey, listen, I'm done with the comforts of this world. I am broken. And ashes, they would actually pour ashes as a sign of mourning either on their forehead or they'd actually sometimes even lay in them. Do you know why they did that? It was supposed to be a visible expression that our hearts are broken before God. He says, you know what? If the miracles would have happened in those cities that happened in yours, that I did, the Messiah, they would have repented. You, on the other hand, you have rejected me instead of repented. And then he says, verse 22, nevertheless, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Here we learn something. Just like there are degrees of rewards for faithfulness to Christ and his service, where's that? First Corinthians chapter 3. There will be degrees of rewards for faithfulness and service in his kingdom, so there are degrees of judgment. In fact, you can see this verse 22. says, it'll be more tolerable for these cities than for you. And you, this, this must have cut deeply, verse 23. You, Capernaum, where was Jesus' home base operation? This city. Capernaum. Remember when Nazareth, they ran him out of Nazareth. In fact, they wanted to run him off a cliff. He sets a base in Capernaum and he says, Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven. Will you? You will descend to Hades. This is kind of the holding place of the dead waiting judgment for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom. Ooh, guys familiar Sodom. Okay, that's the hot spot of homosexual sin. All right. Sodom It's where we get our word sodomy from. It was like wickedness on display and advertise. He said this, if the miracles which occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, in your city, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What Jesus is doing is he's picking these cities around the Sea of Galilee. There were four. There were four primary ones. And he picked out three of them. He says, if the miracles that I did and, and these, if I would have done these miracles in these other cities, they would have existed. I did these miracles in your cities, these cities around the Sea of Galilee, and you did not repent. You're going to face great judgment. There's a lesson you got to learn here. You reject Jesus Christ and his miracles and the, like the great miracle salvation, you will face judgment. And I wouldn't want you to do that. You, you don't even understand what I'm even saying when I say judgment. You know, like a uh, bad day in hell or something like that. No, you don't even know what that is. You absolutely do not want to go there. Yet that will be the end for those who reject him. It's interesting. Those four cities, he names three. You know the city he doesn't name, Tiberius. Tiberius over on the, uh, if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee on the west side there, it was actually the Roman resort city. They had some hot springs there. He doesn't name Tiberius because his his message and his miracles apparently didn't go there. Today the three cities. We kind of know where the ruins of Capernaum are, but uh, we can't really, we're not even exactly sure with Bethsaida and Capernaum Okay, they're totally desolate. On the other hand, Tiberius still remains. Jesus' prophecy has already happened. And so he says, listen, you need to repent. You need to stop walking in unbelief. But then he goes on to say what you need to do is you need to come to me. Now, the section that we're coming here in verse 25 is absolutely fascinating. Jesus then begins to pray, and he prays so that the people will hear him. Try this for prayer. Look what he says. At this time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. He he comes and he approaches his father. Let me tell you how how, what Jesus does that gives him great confidence in his ministry. He has utter, complete confidence that the Father is fulfilling his will and he has communion with the Father. He prays. There is a sincerity of relationship. He says, I praise you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, the Pharisees, the scribes, the the self-educated, those who thought they were super intellectually powerful and, and thought Jesus was something that meant to be scoffed at and mocked. True back then, true today. He says, guess what? I praise you, Father, you've actually hidden these things from such people. On the other hand, you've revealed them to who? Infants. You see, you've got to come to God with total humility, total dependence. You ever notice an infant? I I mean, they're humbled. They can't do anything for themselves. They are completely dependent. That is the only way you come to God. And he says, and then look at this next verse here. He says, and yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And then when you come to verse 27, I'd encourage you to highlight it, if not underline it. It is one of the most profound passages in all of scriptures. Let it speak for itself. Jesus says this now after just praying. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Everything has been given to me. I have all authority. In fact, how does the Gospel of Matthew end? Twenty-eight, eighteen. All authority has been given to me. I received it from the Father. I am it. I have got all authority. I've got authority over the natural elements, authority over sin, sickness, death, hell. I have absolute authority because I am the Supreme Lord. It's been given to me by my Father. All authority has been handed over to me by my Father and look what else he says. And no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son. Now, that word know, the word here is, in Greek is, it is the It has the idea of intimate personal knowledge. It's not like knowing facts. Okay? That's a different word, oida. It is to know deeply, intimately, a deep knowledge. We have true intimacy. I know the father deeply and personally and intimately. And he knows me, and he says, "Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son." And, and here you don't want to miss this. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Whoa! <coughs> Why don't we skip right over that? Because that what, what is Jesus saying there? And he says, "And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him." What Jesus is saying is. If you're really going to know God, I'm the one who does the selection. I'm the one who opens hearts and I, eyes. I do it. It's not up to your good works. It's not up to your good behavior. I do it. I make the selection. I choose. I am the sole, supreme, sovereign authority. I elect them. I choose them. I bring them to myself. And he tells them this because he wants them to know the reality of how it really is. You and I would never come to that conclusion unless God revealed it into his, in his word. We'd like to think like, well, you know, we made a decision and we kind of chose Jesus. In actuality, Jesus says, no, I chose you. Jesus made a statement like this. Remember in John chapter 6, he actually says, you know, uh, let, let me tell you this. In John chapter 6, verse 37, he says, all the father gives me. Shall come to me. All the Father gives me shall come to me, but then He says this, and the one who comes to me I most certainly will not cast out. Jesus says, I am the one that brings them to the Father. It is through me I choose. But then notice what He says the very next verse. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You see, Jesus says, I pick, I choose. Then he gives this open invitation. It's an invitation to all, and it's an invitation, you come to me. You don't come to a church, an organization, a creed, some sort of person like a spokesperson, a church person, a pastor, or a clergyman. You come to me. Come to me. Who is he calling, though? Those who are weary and heavy laden. You see, if you are tired of following rules, trying to earn favor with God, certainly the masses were tired of being under a pharisaical system, not only had the law of God, which they couldn't keep, but the Pharisees had all these additional rules and rituals. They were overwhelmed. They live in perpetual guilt. It was a heavy burden. Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. And so you you have this great truth that God is the one who actually chooses And at the same time, there is the additional truth that anyone who comes to him in your brokenness, you will receive his rest. If you were weary and you were heavy laden, he says, you come to me and I will give. I I don't want you to miss this. I've underlined all these in my Bible because this is such profound truth. You don't earn rest. You're like, well, if I'm really good for God and I follow Jesus rules and everything he has to say, then eventually I'll be able to rest. No, he says, I will give it to you as a gift. Salvation is always by grace. It is an absolute free gift. I'll give you the rest, but you come to me. If you try to do it any other way, you will not have the rest. It will not work. I'm the authority. You come to me. And furthermore, look what he says. He says this in verse 29. He shows us what his relationship with God really look like. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, you see, we have kind of said to the Gospels, you just come to Jesus, and it's almost like you just add Jesus to your life, but you kind of do whatever you want. And then you always have that little fire insurance policy that when you, you know, when, when you die, like, oh, that's right, I have the Jesus card. Look, I have it right here. An actuality to come to Jesus is to truly yield your life to him. It is to come to him not just as savior, and then I'll think about whether I'm going to have him be Lord in my life. It is to come to him as Savior and Lord. And notice what he says. He says, Take my yoke upon you. This this idea of yoke, okay. we don't have too many of these around here, but you still see these in third world countries. It would be this like long wooden beam and it'd have this like wooden like uh, necklace sort of deal that kind of go under the ox's neck. And what you do is you get your oxen to go and pull the load and go in the direction and you could control them and you can do farming or whatever else you need to do with them. But they had to be in the yoke. And that's what it was. And then Jesus as a carpenter working with his dad. Certainly probably built lots of yokes in his time. This is very familiar terminology And by the way, it was the terminology that was used that if you were to study under a rabbi, you actually came under his yoke. You learn from him. You went in the same direction as he's whispering in your ear and he's teaching you. You're going in his direction. Well, that's what it means to know Jesus. It is to yield to him, to his lordship and to be under his yoke and to go in his way. And you're like, oh, that will be hard. That'll be work. He says, let me tell you what I'm like. I am gentle and humble in heart, but you, you've got to learn from me. Trust me. Learn from me. Enter into my school of discipleship and I will accomplish my work through you and 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 I will do it for you. But here's the problem. If you've come to Christ, but you're like, oh, I'm trying to do life my way. Well, I know what God has to say in the Bible about loving my spouse or I know what I'm supposed to do with my children or loving my neighbor or forgiving, but I, I don't want it. I want to grit my teeth. I'm going to be bitter. I'm going to be mad. I'm going to isolate myself. Whatever sin you are kind of focusing on, and you, life, you realize that life really isn't working so well, and things seem to be broken, let me tell you what's going on. You're going against the yoke. You're not going with the Lord's way. But in fact, if you say, God, this is the hardest thing in my life, but I am yielding everything to you. Whatever you say about my life, about my marriage, about my kids, about my work, whatever I yield to you. He says, listen, my yoke is easy, it is gentle, and it is light. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so Jesus' message to all of us is, come to me. So if you have doubts, come to Jesus. We overcome our doubts by developing our faith in Christ. But we must come to him. And he takes us from where we are. And as we are learning from him, he takes us to what we will become in his hand. Friends, that is the vision of our church. That what began with a seedling of faith that God wrought in our hearts. It will grow and develop and manifest. It will be a tree that bears much fruit. Because our doubts in life have been removed by our faith in Christ. And Matthew chapter 11 does just that. Let's pray. Lord, we want to praise you and thank you for an amazing chapter in the Bible. Where we can look at head-on doubts from one of your key men, John the Baptist. And to see that indeed our doubts can be overcome when we see you for who you are. So, Father, if there is someone here today who has never truly placed their faith in Christ, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I finally get it. I see who you are. You've called me to yourself to experience forgiveness and life, to go your way. And so today I turn my life fully to you. I trust in your son. And Father, for all of us here, help us to be clear with the gospel, to not water it down, but to be very clear with the truth about Jesus so they will truly know life in his name. And Father, for those of us perhaps who are just going the opposite direction of where you're trying to lead us, you've got our attention. We stop and we ask for more faith and give us the ability to go as you've directed. Lord, we want you to be manifested in complete and pure ways in our life. For we love you, for you are life itself. And we pray in Jesus' name.